We'll be in Matthew 15 this morning, as you're well aware, as we continue our study through uh, this gospel, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Let me just say before we begin, I, I love Tom. I really do. He is a kind and considerate boss. But when I got this uh, passage assignment today, as he was going to be in Ecuador for the week, I, I became, I'm not going to lie, just a little skeptical. I saw on the, the, the website, you've, you've heard of the Gospel Coalition website, and they included an article on this exact passage in a recent series that they're doing, and you may have come across it. In fact, some of you probably did. And normally that would be, that would be great, you know, that, that the very passage that I'm going to be preaching on is, is featured in an article there on the website. However, the, the, the series that they're doing is entitled <laughs> Perplexing Passages of the Bible. <laughs> I wish I was joking. January 9th, 2015, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, one of the five perplexing passages that they covered, and I have zero doubt that Tom knew that and volunteered to go to <laughs> Ecuador. Well, as you've read this text this week, and I hope you've had the chance uh, to do that, you may have scratched your head at times, as I did, mainly due to some of the statements directed to this Canaanite woman that we're about to read about. I think that likely our, our, our head scratching is due to some uh, misunderstandings of what Christ is seeking to do and to accomplish in ministering to this woman. Well, we are blessed this morning to be able, as a body, to consider this inspired Word of God. We are blessed to sit here for, for 30 minutes and to profit from, from thinking and considering and being mutually edified. We have His Holy Spirit to help us in understanding and applying this Word. And so, let's come with that prayer in mind this morning. Let's come with that humility as we submit ourselves under the God of this word. So I invite you to follow along as we read Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then answered Jesus unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed immediately. Eight short verses here, but a remarkable story. Here we have a, a really a front row seat 
in an increasingly intense scene. Desperate words, desperate pleas, unusual silence, difficult and even harsh words are shared here. But a scene that we see culminating with Jesus marveling at the faith of this Canaanite woman. Even as we marvel at it this morning in reading it. Well, I want us to approach this story in three parts this morning. The first part will be the setting. Really, we just want to look at a few introductory matters concerning the context of this passage, so the setting. Secondly, we want to look at the the dialogue, the conversation itself that takes place here in this passage. We want to pull it apart just a little more closely and, and look at it and study it. And then finally, we want to end just briefly with this statement. This climax is as Jesus makes this statement of praise for this woman's great faith. So first of all, the setting. Just a brief look here. Remember from last week, as we looked at the first part of Matthew 15, Jesus has a very direct and likely very heated conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities or or the spiritual elite as they're known. A conversation about their their mastery at appearances. And that's what Jesus called them. They were external pietists. And he looks at them and calls them hypocrites, hearts that were far from God, even as he said their lips would honor him with a smile. In that exchange that we saw last week, Jesus does not shy away from calling them what they were as blind people leading the blind and soon to fall into the pit. When Jesus talks that way, the religious officials and leaders tend to not take it well. It creates a stir. And as as the disciples have done several times with Jesus in the Gospels, they withdraw. And so here we see Jesus withdrawing, taking themselves away. They, they want to get, a while and that, get away, and that's where we pick up in our text here in verse 21. We find Jesus and the disciples leaving the area and getting away, it says, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This withdrawal isn't just going to the neighboring town or out into the wilderness as they have done in the past. Here, they travel at least 25, perhaps 50 miles up to this area, north of the the Sea of Galilee towards Tyre and Sidon. If you know your geography, it's, it's up north on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But the point is, they're outside of Israel. Jesus was really getting away this time. Again, more, more than likely, leaving to allow things to calm down as it, as it was not yet his time to be arrested. But also, undoubtedly, as Mark makes clear in his account, probably to get away for rest and to, to spend time re- refreshing himself with his disciples and, and preparing for another season of ministry. We know that he, he's ending, he's closing up his, his Galilean ministry, and so, and so they get away. Also, in in setting the stage, we meet right away, right out of the gate, this heroine of the story in verse 22, who goes by the name Canaanite woman. 
Matthew starts this verse with the word behold. He wants to call attention to this very unusual scene that's about to occur. You know what that is. A Gentile woman about to approach a Jewish man, approach Jesus with a request. This was, this was unusual. Matthew draws our attention to this. Well, we don't know much about or really anything at all about this woman other than what we're about to read in this text. And then, and then Matthew, or Mark gives us a little bit of detail as well. But what we do find out is that she's from this very region that the, that the disciples and Jesus have escaped to. Mark tells us she's a Syrophoenician woman, which would have just been the, the present day name for that territory. Matthew, however, wants to make it clear that she is a Canaanite. Unlike Mark, Matthew highlights this fact primarily for his, his Jewish audience as this would highlight the complete segregation or separation between this woman, this Canaanite, and the people of God. Even reading this would elicit harsh thoughts of this woman from Canaan. We would see her as a pagan, an idol worshiper, part of the ancient enemy of God. So she was not just a Gentile, she was a Canaanite. One least likely, and this is probably the point, one least likely to be interested in or drawn to faith in the God of Israel. At least that's how we look at it by human standards. But if you, if you consider that, and I, as I considered that, that would describe all of us, Right? One's least likely to have faith in this God of Israel. Before considering the the actual dialogue that that we see here, consider as well that in chapter 15 and and even with this story itself, we we start to see a a subtle shift. Calvin refers to it as as a prelude to the blending of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. We just saw last week Jesus upset the food laws in the parallel passage that we looked at. And this story, along with others that we're going to look at in a few weeks, begin to foreshadow what is soon to become very explicit. As people from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity are drawn to this Messiah and actually find their hope and their rest in Him which was the plan from the very beginning, but but we start to see this take shape. And today's story provides more steam to that moving train as as this Gentile woman's faith seems to come out of nowhere. Right? Seems to come out of nowhere. And even this, the actual healing or the, the exorcism that's going to take place, it really takes a back seat to the son of David and his dealings with this Gentile. Well, this leads us to part two, the dialogue. As you probably noticed in in, in just scanning through or, or reading through, the bulk of this section is a conversation. Matthew narrates for us a dialogue between Jesus and this woman from Canaan. I I love that specifically about the Gospels. 
We know, yes, the, the entire Bible points us to Jesus and is about him, but, but the Gospels make Jesus crystal clear. We get to watch him, him live life. We get to watch him respond and, and, and pray and, and interact with his Father and with other people. We get to know him. We get to look directly at Jesus. This Let me remind you, people of God, this is the one that we will one day see with our own eyes and bow before and I I suspect be able to talk with individually. We now get to observe this one and to to worship him through his written word. I know in, in a very limited way, it's like preparing to do an interview with a celebrity that you've never met before. Before that interview, you you want to get to know as much as you can about that person before you actually sit down to talk with him or her. Here in the Gospels, we get to know Jesus before we will actually physically sit down to talk with him. We should want to get to know him through this word. That's, That's why we have the Gospels, to see him. The Gospels ready us. They prepare us to see Christ which for me brings up the painful question, how much about him will we already know because we have gazed upon him in his word? How ready will we be to see him as we sit and speak with him? God, help us to behold him. Help us to gaze upon him. And so even in this short conversation in Matthew 15. We get to observe his dealings with this woman, how he acts towards her, even though it is a very unconventional conversation, even for Christ. Well, in this conversation, the the woman has three lines, Jesus has three lines, and the disciples have one. There are no throwaways in this scene. Each of these lines contributes to our understanding about Christ. Right from the beginning, we see that the woman, a mother, was in crisis mode. Look at verse 22. According to that, she comes out agonizing, crying out repeatedly for mercy, as the tense of the verb would indicate. Her daughter is oppressed by a demon, but not just oppressed by a demon, which would be traumatic enough, but it it says here that she is severely oppressed, wickedly oppressed. This is to an elevated state as Matthew is drawing out and this mother is in distress. You can imagine the desperation that she feels. So the very first words that we read from her mouth, they make sense to us. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy. My my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. For me, in reading this, several questions come to mind that I know we can't fully answer as we read this first line. Some of the questions, not as important as others, such as, how did she even recognize Jesus? How did she know it was him? He's a long distance from home at this point, especially considering the mode of transportation 
back then, right? How does she know him? But perhaps more importantly, how or why does she know to address him as Lord? Well, I know you could argue here that she's just being respectful. She may be saying sir or, or master as the word could be translated. Perhaps this is just a respectful address that he's giving to him. But when you couple that with the following name, son of David, it seems that there is more going on here than just a mutual or, or patriarchal respect that one might show another. She, as a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman, is calling on the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, the one promised to the Jews to rescue them from their oppression and sin. And she cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy. It's impossible to know what is going on in this lady's heart. Does she fully realize who she's really speaking with? What does she really think about this Jesus? Does she consider him to be God? Obviously, we can't get into her head, but she seems to know that the one she addresses as Lord, as the promised Messiah and Son of David, she seems to know that he is the one that can mercifully meet her need. And so she goes to him. And she was right. I thought about this, this lady with with very limited knowledge, limited exposure to this Jesus, the Son of God, approaches him seeking what he knows best, mercy. And in this seemingly random encounter, as Jesus has left Israel for some time, And gone away, this seemingly random encounter, this this woman finds herself begging mercy from the only one in the universe that can offer mercy. He's the one that can actually give it. The Lord, the son of David, she's in front of the one who extends mercy. People of God, this is still true of him today. This is still true of him right now. He extends to us mercy even as we sit here together. Well, she cannot offer him anything. Nothing to merit this mercy, but she can weep. And so she does. The only thing she knows to say at this point is, is have mercy, son of David. For many of this, us this morning, we have been exposed to the person of Jesus for, for most of our lives. We know his teachings. And we do want to cherish him. I, imperfectly, yes, but, but we do want to worship him as Savior and Lord. And yet many of us have moved beyond this approach to him. This tact that she takes as if we were no longer in need of mercy. Lamentations reminds us that his mercies are new every morning because his mercies are needed every morning. And this woman, she feels that. 
and seeks his mercy. I think this may be partly why Jesus later (coughs) will marvel at her great faith. But he doesn't marvel yet, does he? Jesus appears on the scene here in our text and reminds in a most unusual way. He's heard the woman's plea. He's the one being addressed here, but in verse 23 we read, but he did not answer her a word. Nothing but silence. Jesus appears to to just ignore the great physician whose, whose reputation as, as healer has spl- spread clear to this area of Phoenicia stays silent and does nothing. This is not typical for Jesus. In the large and vast majority of his interaction, Jesus is, is free-flowing with, with acts of healing and, and words of encouragement, especially to those most in need. We see that played out in the Gospels. But here, as Augustine wrote, the word answered not a word. Obviously, he could have healed the daughter on the spot. He eventually would. But here, there's nothing. The woman seemed like the type that would merit his compassion. She's respectful to him, clearly earnest about her need, But Jesus offers nothing but deliberate and dramatic silence. I know we've drawn attention to this truth in recent past, but but Jesus sometimes intentionally delays his intervention. We've looked at that, even to the point of causing temporary pain. Without a doubt, some of you are in the midst of silence right now. Perhaps confused as you, as you cry out to God and it seems to do no good. Well, from this passage, take heart from this scene. Silence does not mean absence. I know you can't read to the end of your story like we can here or, or even into the next chapter like we can here, but as the perfect author of our stories, He can be trusted even in the silence. Let's just consider that for a moment. He can be trusted. If you are looking to Jesus this morning, temporary silence and even pain is always for your future good. Well, as you keep reading in this passage, the the woman was not deterred. This silence did not uh, silence her. In fact, her pleas to Jesus seem only to increase and cue up the disciples' one line in this passage, which really doesn't help their reputation all that much. Look at the second part of verse 23. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. If you think about this scene, it's somewhat comical if you can imagine. The woman is is begging for healing and and the disciples come on the other side begging Jesus to to get rid of her, to get her out of there. He's getting hit from from all sides. 
Unfortunately, this is not the first time that we see the disciples with their impatience or insensitivity towards those in need and, and, and sending people away. You can probably think of some, some of those instances. The disciples seem to show no sympathy at all for this lady. She becomes a nuisance to them. And even if Jesus has to heal the daughter, which is somewhat implied, at, even she, if, she has to, if he has to heal just to get rid of her, he wants, they beg him to do that. Lord, send her away. And even though not the main point in this passage, I think it's worth pausing just for a, a moment to reflect on how we view those around us. Even those we might consider a challenge or, or an inconvenience. The disciples' reaction here calls us to think, to think about current, live, close-to-home examples or scenarios to actually examine our own willingness or unwillingness to forego our comforts for the benefit of somebody else. Are we as a church body searching for opportunities to demonstrate compassion and thereby evidencing that we belong to this Savior? Or are we content to, to send them away? It's too much time. They're annoying me. Well, it's at this point that Jesus does break his silence. And in verse 24, we see that. But I think the woman would likely have preferred Jesus to stay silent when she hears what he says. Look at verse 24. He says to the the disciples, and likely in the hearing of this woman, that he was, quote, sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The obvious implication being that she was outside of his parish. I can't do anything for you. I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus had essentially said the exact same thing just a, a few chapters prior when he addressing his disciples, sending them out. He says in chapter 10, verse 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Exact terms here. Why so narrow? Was Jesus racist? Some will say that. Clearly not. In in addition to to multiple demonstrations of love to the Gentiles that we see and will see in just a few months, in just a few months from this time, Jesus would pay willingly the ultimate price by laying down his own life for every tribe, every tongue, every nation and ethnicity. The Gentile mission was about to take off. Jesus was not a racist. But what we hear from Jesus in this statement about the house of Israel was the temporary but real priority. There was an order to the mission that God had given to him. 
He was sent first to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. He was sent to fulfill the very promises of God that that God had made to them in the Old Testament. But why would he make this statement to this woman at this time of her greatest need? Is he really turning her away because she's not Jewish as it would first appear? Well, there have been numerous examples and explanations given to this question. And you can look them up under the most perplexing passage series that's going on to understand them more fully. But in part, at, at the very least, it seems again that Jesus is testing this woman. He's trying this woman's faith and, and testing her resolve, but, but it's not for his gain, right? This is for her benefit. He's ministering to her. At this point, she could have very easily turned around and said, what are you talking about, compassionate Messiah? who supposedly stoops to to rescue those in need, really? First, he he doesn't even acknowledge me. And now he tells me that he wasn't sent for my kind. I want nothing to do with this Messiah. That that would have been the natural response. In fact, we might even expect to read that. But remember, Jesus knows this woman. Created her. Even before she was born, she was one of his own. And as one of his own, he again gives her faith and he tries her faith. This is what Jesus does. Even with you this week, he gives us faith and he tries our faith. So how does she respond? What is her actual response to Christ's first statement? Verse 25. Again, not offended or deterred, but rather she came and knelt before the Lord. Or some of your translations say she worshipped before the Lord as it could be translated. She kneels or lays before him and says simply, Lord, help me. She boils her prayer down to its most basic form and pleads, help me. In short, she's saying, I I hear you, Lord. You're sent only to the house of Israel. I need your help. You're the only one that can give it. Lord, help me. I am so grateful to see this prayer in the Bible. Aren't you thankful to read this prayer? It shows us, as, as J.I. Packer points out in his book on prayer, that, that prayer is le- often less of a how-to than a who-to. Right now, for this woman, eloquence is not even a thought. The emphasis in is not, not, not on the content of her prayer at this point as much as it is on the, the longing of her heart, the need of her soul, and on the one that she's crying out to. 
Many of us struggle with knowing how to pray. And this text should not be used as an, as an excuse to, to work less at, at our prayers. But the how-to develops as we face our desperation and crawl to the only source of help. That's how our prayer life is built. So she admits, Lord, I cannot do what I'm asking for. So help me. She doesn't look deep within herself for more faith. She doesn't even try harder to believe more. Rather, she looks outside of herself, casting her eyes to the one who gives faith. She's not beyond pleading for help, and neither should we. Well, it's at this point in the story that I think our our admiration for this woman's resolve should be high. She withstood silence from the, the Son of God. She withstood the disciples begging for her dismissal. The Lord's clarity, a harsh clarity about his mission, which, which seems to exclude her. But it's at this point in verse 26 that Jesus really drops the hammer. To me, this would be the knockout punch with what he says to her next. Let's read it again in verse 26. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What? Is that not harsh? None of us could get away with making that statement without WRAL being all over our story, right? Perhaps this verse, more than any other in the Bible, has earned for Jesus a great deal of bad press. Just this week, in in reading different commentaries, uh, some of the words were, were, were brutal, offensive, quote, the worst kind of chauvinism, incredible insolence by Jesus, atrocious, these words lobbed at Jesus for what he says here in verse 26. But they're missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. They're missing it badly. They miss the intent and perhaps even the tone in which Jesus is saying these things. The words are harsh But Jesus is not seeking to bury this woman with an insult. The true scriptures say that that a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This woman was both of these. And the Lord will not, nor does he, sin against her. Jesus again here is making sure, making certain that she grasps the mission that he had been given by his heavenly Father. That he was sent to the Jews first, that that he was born king of the Jews, but at the very same time, he continues to press her. He continues to test her interest, her faith, 
Would this even stronger and and escalated statement deter her as it had to so many others? Or will she continue to cling to him in faith? In verse 26, and, and as Jesus often does, he uses a familiar scene that people could immediately associate with, they could relate to. And here he uses the family dinner table. He says, it is not right, it would not be right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. To take God's particular provision and favor, his healing and his blessing, and treat it as profane. If the connection's not clear as to what he's saying, the children in this scene, in this one sentence parable that he gives, are the Israelites which clearly leaves the Gentiles to be dogs. Jesus uses or employs the the common classification that the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as. I don't think I can even, I can remove all of the, the tension that this causes today in our politically correct culture. But what we can know for certain, what we do know is that Jesus was very calculated with every word he speaks here. Carefully pursuing and drawing out and seeking the Canaanites' response here. Of this difficult verse, John Calvin puts it this way. Listen to what he says. Christ seems to be cutting away all hope even more harshly than before. Very true, right? But she realizes the door is closed on her not to drive her away, but rather to make her seek by faith to get through the cracks in the wood. So in true care, Jesus stirs his child to pursue him with an even greater desire, even with these hard words. Christ knows very well that that he is the only one that can satisfy, and so he prompts her to come to him with even greater faith. Even if his prompting comes in very unconventional ways. It's not right, he says, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If you look over in Mark, and you don't need to do that, but he, he, he brings a little bit of clarity or maybe some helpful clarity as he states in 727, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and feed it to the little dogs. Again, this priority was real but it was also temporal. It was temporary. Slowly being abolished, even in this chapter and in the next chapter, as as interestingly enough, the Gentiles are fed physical bread as Jesus does the miracle of of feeding the 4,000. We're going to see that in two weeks. But even greater than that, keep in mind that this ethnic primacy would very soon be completely abolished as Christ goes to the cross 
for all nations, breaking down, as we, as we read in Ephesians, the, the wall of hostility and securing redemption for every race. But until then, Jesus stands by this severe statement. Let's notice briefly how the dialogue comes to a close. Each contributor in this conversation has one more line each. And it's to these lines that Matthew is, is, is pushing us for. He wants us to get here with how he structures this text. We miss everything if we cut out early and miss these last lines. So the woman speaks first. As Jesus has just stated that it would not be right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs, the woman with, with incredible wisdom and humility, respect, and even wit, she responds, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That statement is, is close to unbelievable if you stop to consider it. No hint of anger. No hint of offense or, or defensiveness. In fact, she agrees with Christ's assessment of the priority. She agrees of her unworthiness, of her status as a dog. Yes, Lord, you, you are right about me. You are right about your people. I, I agree. But just a crumb of bread, a crumb of your blessing, I know you can spare that. Here the woman extends Christ's one-line parable and says even the dogs get to eat scraps. This type of response is, is far from natural. As far from natural as it could possibly be. God is at work in her heart. We don't understand our need like this without the Spirit of God being at work in our heart, exposing that we truly are dogs. Yes, Lord, you're right. Obstacle after obstacle has been put in her path, intentionally by a gracious Savior, culminating with this stunner, but she keeps her eyes on him, holding on to hope, knowing that he as Lord as son of David, can, can help her. Knowing that this, this Messiah, he has mercy to spare, even if it is just the leftovers. Lord, even the dogs get crumbs. Well, it's this final line that leads to the final and brief point, the statement that Jesus makes in verse 28. And we'll look at this very, very briefly. Verse 28, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. O woman, Jesus says. You can almost see his smile, can't you? You can sense his delight in this, in this term. Oh, woman, it, it, it's a phrase of endearment. Jesus was, was moved by her faith. 
doesn't commend her persistence or, or her humility or even her great respect. Jesus says, great is your faith. And her faith was great because of its object. The Lord, the Son of David, this giver of mercy, the giver of, of help and even crumbs, he remained her constant focus. And that is what the Lord was after that day. That is what the Lord is after this morning. Before we pray together, this, this passage provides for us great hope. This passage provides great hope even if you sit here this morning far from God. Either as a professing Christian or, or perhaps uh, not claiming to know or follow Christ at all. Jesus delights in those who by faith seek mercy. The giver of faith is the giver of mercy. Mercy from the one who is, is rich in mercy. He will not turn you away. He may test you, but he knows his own and he desires their eternal joy. This word calls us to come to him today. People of God, former Canaanites, former dogs, because of Christ, we are now children seated at the table, sheltered by mercy and draped in nothing but Christ's righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. Let us honor him even now in our thoughts for granting us faith in the Son of David, the sweet object of our faith. Let me pray for us and then Keith will come and lead. Lord, thank you for this word. As you marveled at this woman's faith, we marvel at you. Lord, would you help us? God, would you help us to see more clearly our need for mercy and to see more clearly the giver of mercy? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.